Good afternoon and welcome to the Cowboys in Life podcast, the second best China Africa podcast you've ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China Africa research, Washington DC, I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, joined by my co-host, Ngam Kalu. Everything all right, Dr. Kalu? Everything is wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. I just spent this last week in New York City um, on the fringes of the United Nations General Assembly. That was a very, very exciting experience for me. But otherwise, things are great. Tell me you did some serious professional networking. Yes, I most certainly did. I also got to stay at the hotel, the UN hotel, which for me is even more exciting than networking. The same one that all the presidents stayed in. That um, yeah, I got to do some really good networking, especially with um, South Sudan Ooh. and um, some other African businesses and leaders and official delegations. It was good. Gosh darn, that's that's pretty fantastic. Good for you. And and I I mean, are you one of those people that just thinks New York is like exponentially better than DC in every way imaginable? So going to New York just made you happy. I I will qualify that by starting with the, the acknowledgement that I lived in New York for a year. Okay. And I loved it. I had a blast. So for me, it felt very much like going back home. And one of the first things I did when I got back there was stop at my old job. And um, it's amazing when you come back to places you've been and you see that you have so much goodwill with the people that you worked with. So yeah, I definitely love New York um, a little bit more than D.C. and I miss it terribly, <laughs> but it was really good being back. That that is, oh, I'm 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 delighted to hear that. Um, today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. Africa Development Jobs, a site run by Nina Oduro, seeks to connect development workers, professional development resources, and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The forum incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. The founder of the site slash co-host of this podcast, Ms. L. Wong, who hasn't been on recently, recently interviewed one of the major figures in Africa-China research, Ambassador David Shin, and uploaded that interview on the site. I urge anyone listening to this podcast to check it out. Today, we are recording over Skype, and last time we recorded, my computer failed me multiple times, so the recording quality was not what I would have liked, and I apologize. But we're going ahead with that because we have a very special guest today, Dr. Yoon Jung Park. Dr. Park is currently a freelance researcher. She has affiliations as Senior Research Associate of the Sociology Department at Rhodes University in uh, Gramstown, South Africa. Am I pronouncing that right, Dr. Park? Yep, that's it. All right. And she just finished a visiting professorship in the African Studies Department of Howard University here in D.C. She also serves as the convener slash coordinator of the Chinese in Africa slash Africans in China Research Network, an international network of over 300 scholars, researchers, graduate students, journalists, filmmakers, and all-around practitioners in Africa-China research, who she helped to establish in 2007. Dr. Park is the author of A Matter of Honor, Being Chinese in South Africa, and dozens of articles and book chapters in scholarly publications, including African Studies, African Asian Studies, etc. She is currently working on her next book on Chinese migrants in Africa. 
She is, as the kids would say, an OG of Africa-China research and knows the field pretty darn well. Dr. Park, how is your book coming along? So I promised you earlier that I wasn't going to cry about this. Um, it is going slowly. I have a, a deadline uh, for the end of next month, October, um, and I still have quite a bit to write, but um, we're hoping that progress will be better next month than it was this month, and that um, there should be a book on the shelves, hopefully, by the summer of next year. All right, and... Can you say kind of what the book's going to be about, what you're going to focus on, and and who the audience is going to be? So um, it's a book for um, Zed Books, um, and it's part of their Asian Arguments series. Um, it's meant to be, in some ways, um, similar to Chris Alden's book, which is part of the African Argument series on um, China in Africa. Um, in some ways, a partner piece to that that focuses much more on the migrants. Um, so that's really what the book is is um, going to examine in um, as much detail as I can get into in about <laughs> 60 to 80,000 words. So it won't be a huge book. It'll be... Um, easy reading for general audiences, but also um, a kind of um, an entry point for people who want pointers to um, more detailed research into certain countries and certain communities within Africa. So um, that's what I'm aiming for. That sounds fantastic. And this thing about like kind of entry points, I think it's a good segue into kind of today's topic where Look, if you are reading any article or, or, or media piece on China-Africa research, sometimes the research might not be of the highest quality. Um, and this is one of those fields that, uh, unlike other scholarly fields, where let's say you're talking about uh, 16th century uh, Italian poetry, for example, in this field, a lot of people publish stuff and other people, you know, kind of read it. I love my academic brothers and sisters. But we don't. We're not particularly well. People, we don't have the, the widest audience. This does have an audience, and, and not just uh, for for scholarly articles, but but for for general um, uh, media interest pieces. And so, let's say for example, you hear about a Chinese corporation that's gonna put up just you know a king's ransom worth of money to secure Sierra Leonean iron, but you haven't really spent a year in Sierra Leone and you don't speak Chinese. How would you make sense of that sort of story? And because you're here, you are going to help our listeners kind of understand how, as a layperson who doesn't have a years of on-the-ground research under the belt, or who doesn't speak, you know, three of these languages fluently, how they can make sense of these sorts of articles and these sorts of stories, and, and what to look out for in terms of judging the, the quality of the research. Um, so with that, on to the show. And our first question is, Dr. Park, what is the number one thing that you look for when reading a China-Africa article or story, and why is that? I think the first thing I would look for is bias. Um, and it's pretty easy to, to pinpoint in an article on um, Chinese engagement in Africa. Um, particularly in the U.S., but I think in the U.K. and in parts of Europe, um, China elicits very strong reactions. Um, in living here in Washington, D.C., uh, for the last three years, it's very clear to me that people 
um, have strong reactions about China. They either love it, having been there, they have great admiration for the things that China's been able to accomplish, or there's a tremendous amount of distrust. Um, China, in some ways, is being framed as you know our next biggest potential competitor mm -hmm. um, slash enemy. So I think um, it tends to elicit strong emotions, and that that's usually pretty clear in an article. Um, by the same token, I think a lot of um, the things that I've read in um, that come out of Chinese media is also similarly biased. So that's something that, again, is fairly easy to pinpoint, and I would look out for that. I mean, if you see something like that immediately, um, you know, read, continue reading, but certainly read with a grain of salt. Are there any kind of, like, code words or, like, kind of, like, dog whistles that Will point to will point to uh, a particular bias uh, for or against uh, the, this engagement. Um, look, I think you know, look out for any kind of um, definitive sentences or hyperbole. You know, where people are talking about this China's the worst possible or the best possible. I mean, those kinds of things in uh, rapidly changing circumstances and um, engagement is is you know, points immediately to some sort of bias um, on the part of the author. Um, uh, I think um, you forwarded to me a, a copy of an article recently written in Chinese media, um, essentially blaming what happened in Kenya um, and Westgate to America's war on terror. I mean, those kinds of things, those kinds of broad-based generalizations and accusations are, you know, to me, a bad article. It's definitely worth reading. You get a sense of how some people in China are reacting, responding to uh, different events, but those are the things to look out for. What about the use of words like um, neo-imperialism? Um, Winslow and myself have had some battles back and forth about whether um, neo-imperialism and, um, and even neo-colonialism are appropriate terms to use with regards to Chinese engagement in Africa. But I see that used as a, I don't quite want to say mobilization, but I see that term used a lot to kind of instill a fear about what the Chinese are doing and sway opinion one way or the other. Um, Economic um, development in terms of um, when we talk about value added or Chinese, um, the potential for the Chinese to impede industrialization, all of a sudden these terms that perhaps have different meanings in different contexts are being used in ways that influence the reader to consider China or Africa um, a certain way as opposed to another. What are, you, what are your opinions on that, Dr. Park? I think it's absolutely um, uh, an indication of bias. Um, you know, to throw around terms like neo-imperial or neo-colonial um, when we're talking about Chinese activities in Africa. I, I, again, one of the biggest issues that I have with this whole field right now is the desire that people have to try to draw these broad generalizations and draw simplistic conclusions, as if China were a single actor, um, you know, all operating under the guidance of Beijing, 
as if Africa were a single country and not 54 countries plus, um, you know, with different relations, right? I mean, even in a single African country, you have very different dynamics, different levels of engagement, different types of interactions, and any attempt to, to kind of broadly frame what is going on, I would, I would look at with a great deal of skepticism. Frankly, I don't think Chinese activities in Africa can be um, considered uh, pre-neo-colonial or neo-imperial. Um, there are clearly some problematic areas that should be monitored very carefully. Um, and things like um, China's Chinese-made goods and their impact on African manufacturing, for example. Um, there have been quite a number of articles that basically are accusing China of de-industrializing Africa. I find that incredibly problematic to make those kinds of causal arguments in, you know, 400 words or 500 words, if, you know, without evidence to back it up. Um, if I look at the South African case, which I'm most familiar with, there are all kinds of reasons why um, the country isn't moving ahead in terms of manufacturing um, that have to do with um, the value of the brand, um, which in our lack thereof. Oh, okay. Um, well, let's uh, let's talk about maybe some. You, you talk about bias. Let's talk about maybe some other things that point to an article's quality or, or lack thereof, and and why they're important. I I would look at um, again. I think one has to distinguish if we're talking about um, right now just media articles or um, academic pieces, um, and the things that I might look for in an academic article. Um, would be things like, um, you know, what kinds of sources are are um, used. I, I, I think I tried to avoid the categorization um, and self-definition as an academic for many, many years, but um, it became quite clear to me when I started picking up articles and the first thing I did was look back at the references. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I am an academic, that's what I do. <laughs> but to me, that's an indication of the quality of the piece. Um, what kind of sources are being cited? Are they only other media articles? Have there been any interviews conducted? Um, are there any secondary sources? Are these respectable? Are they current? You know, if you're reading something about China and Africa and all of the citations are from 2005, how accurate could that article possibly be? There have been so many changes um, in this in the state of the field and on the ground that it's impossible to, um, you know, be accurate um, and only use sources that are dated like that. Um, so that's one thing that I would look at. Um, um, can 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 I add something? Sure. I'll I'll generally I'll generally like give an article a, a side eye if it ever um if it ever like quotes um in terms of modern chinese policy either like deng xiaoping or mao zedong or or, or sunzi or sun Tzu. so if i if if i hear anything like um like uh feeling the stones to cross the river in terms of modern chinese uh, relations 
it's not not you know in the in the eighties or in the in in the nineties, um, but or or anything that quotes Mao in terms of like or, or Joe and Law in terms of like South South Brotherhood, in, in, for for modern day relations, I'll I'll ge I'll generally myself uh, um, I'll, I'll I'll look at an article quite quite differently um, because I've I've um, my specialty in terms of looking at China Africa relations. Um, from the 50s until let's say the 90s, I, I see a, a general break in terms of that area of, of stuff, or even like Chinese culture, or, or um, I, I have issues in terms of like Zheng He or, um, or, or, or any tr traditional kind of things that try to connect, oh, you know, just like Zheng He, China, this Chinese company is trying to help Africans or something along those lines. But I, I, I don't know if, 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 if other scholars feel that way. I think, it's I think it's important to be able to identify when a Chinese official, for example, is trying to frame China-Africa relations um, you know, in, in the context of that colonial or um, post-colonial um, you know, newly independent African states and a Cold War era rhetoric. And that's what we need to see it as, it's rhetoric, right? I mean, it's a perfect, uh, a particular way of framing China-Africa relations that, you know, quite frankly, a lot of Chinese officials continue to try to use. Now, when journalists use that, or when an academic uses it, as if that is what continues to exist, then yeah, I, I would definitely raise, raise an eyebrow. Um, you know, we have to look at the way China-Africa relations are being framed. And I, and I think, frankly, some journalists aren't just out there reporting what's going on, but they're in the business of trying to sway people's opinions. And, you know, you need to be careful when you're reading these things, um, what it is that you're actually reading. Um, I think the other thing that we need to be really, really careful about are um, quote-unquote facts and figures. Um, a lot of people are, you know, throw around big figures and um, numbers in terms of what China's promised to uh, a certain country in Africa, um, how much money has been um, uh, committed. And there's a big difference between verbal promises and even signed agreements um, <laughs> versus what actually gets you know, deposited into a bank account or what gets committed on an actual project. And oftentimes the figures are much lower than what is originally cited in media articles. But the media articles never go back and say, oh, well, actually they only gave about a quarter of that. <laughs> I, I, I never see so much credibility about uh, MOU figures and, and signatures as a, when I'm reading a China-Africa article. A memorandum of understanding is, you know, handed down from from God Himself. Uh, but in most circumstances, an MOU, you know, isn't all that much. And then, in terms of my own dealings in China, the negotiations don't actually begin until after the contract is signed. Um, but, um, but, but, yeah, um, doc, Dr. Kulu, uh, I've been monopolizing you. You want to throw in some questions in here? Um, I do. I actually have a question that's built, um, I think, the last sort of three areas we've kind of touched on, um, directly 
affect this question. Um, Dr. Park, do you think that we have sufficient empirical data to begin to have um, to begin to establish a foundation for more broad sweeping generalized theories of engagement between China and Africa? I know that when I did my own research for my dissertation, which is now you know just over two years ago, there wasn't enough data. I was having to at that point um, I was having to rely quite a bit on journalistic and academic um, articles to begin to understand what was going on but it was it was more difficult even you know earlier than that to find the necessary information but now we have a lot more information and it's growing even more plentiful so much so that Zed books refused to publish my dissertation that's okay <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that we will have um, that we have sufficient data or, or when do you think that'll that'll likely be I, to be honest, I don't know that we'll ever have sufficient or accurate enough data to make the kind of broad sweeping generalizations. I mean, you have to recall that we're talking about um, China and and Africa. Um, one of the things that Deborah Brautigam is constantly saying is that the way in which China measures its kind of assistance and financing and aid is very different from the way most of the rest of the world measures these things, you know. So um, I have another colleague, Stephen Bell, um, who did quite a lot of work on foreign direct investment between South Africa and um, China. And the figures that China puts out and the figures that he was collecting from the South African government were, were quite different. So not only are there differences in terms of those kinds of things, but if if we go to my field, migration, for example, I don't know any African country that has an accurate count of you know how many legal migrants have entered um, you know their country in the last month. Um, you know, South Africa might be considered the most developed and certainly one of the wealthiest countries in Africa. Um, and its Home Affairs Department is the most dismal of, of all of the, the government departments, and it's been, you know, atrocious about um, collecting information. The last census was off by something like five, six percent. Um, wow. So, you know, trying to report on or write about things like figures are very is very challenging. It's very difficult. So, in, in terms of that kind of data, I think we're we're faced with multiple challenges in most of the countries that we're looking at in Africa, and again, as I said, um, with China. Um, having said that, I do think it's possible to start um, based on the kind of research that's being done now by people like yourself. You know, all of the PhDs that have been done in the last four, five, six years that are currently being undertaken. These are the kinds of um, in-depth studies that will produce the, the more accurate, the more um, in-depth pictures of what's actually happening. And I think, you know, on the basis of those, we can start um, maybe getting a, a more accurate picture of what's going on in different countries. Um, and I think those are the stories that we need to focus on getting out there, not the sensational kind of um, things that, that occur, not at the signing of the MOUs where the promises are made. 
Um, I, I think it's a fantastic point. And for all our listeners, if you are a PhD student, I want you on this podcast in the future. <laughs> um, oh, so Dr. Kalu, why don't you throw another question in there um, before I, I, I get in? We've, we've talked a little bit about the, the in-depth studies that are coming out um, with regards to China and Africa like relations. Would you, would you say, um, I guess, could you speak to whether you think that there's a specific area that's being overlooked? I know that there's been a lot of work recently um, on um, trade and investment and, and financial flows between China and Africa, or um, the look at extractives, that's another big one. Um, and then you work in migration and um, understanding the migrant communities, you know, and the Chinese migrant communities in Africa and then um, African migrant communities in China. Um, I remember back a couple years ago, there was some talk about the economic impact and that's still kind of, um, you still hear about it from time to time, but would you, would, you um, would there be any particular area that you think that right now the scholarship is overlooking or even to, reporting the journalistic articles are overlooking in terms of the relationship. Um, again, you know, this, this ambiguous term of China, noting that there's lots of different actors and multiple dimensions in the relationship. Um, I, I think in some countries, we are in, in a place now where we start looking at impacts, or at least preliminary impacts. Um, and I've tried to um, look, focus a little bit of, on, on those issues in South Africa, um, again, the country that I spent the most time in um, and I'm most familiar with. Um, and, and in a number of other countries, I think you've had enough Chinese um, presence and certainly enough Chinese engagement in some of those countries to start looking at um, at least some of the preliminary economic impacts certainly social, cultural impacts. Um, there are a few PhDs um, being undertaken now that look at um, the impact um, or the activities of various Confucius Institutes in different African countries, and mm -hmm. that should be really interesting. The high number of um, Africans in different countries who are undertaking Chinese studies um, is, is, is a, uh, an area that um, should be very fruitful. Um, the other thing is not so much an issue area, but uh, do you, a physical um, geographical area that hasn't been covered in nearly as much depth. But um, the last few times I've been in asked you or involved in putting together um, special issues. Mm -hmm. There seem to be very few people looking at Chinese in North Africa, in the Sahel. Um, and um, there, there's clearly uh, an emphasis on Sub-Saharan Africa um, and an emphasis on, you know, perhaps the English, French, Portuguese-speaking countries, but um, not so much um, in, in the Arab um, countries. And it, it's an area that would uh, certainly be incredibly fruitful in terms of comparison, because those countries are quite different in many ways um, from Sub-Saharan African countries. So um, that whole area, I think, benefit from a lot more study and we haven't seen quite as much coming out of out of those countries well, well dr park i think you've done a good job of um angering all our pan-africanist listeners by saying there's a difference between north africa and sub-saharan africa and as, as well as our south african government um listeners but that's okay 
Um, um, no, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to ask, uh, I, I think, one, one more question on my end um, be, before I give it to, to uh, Dr. Kalu. Let, I, I'm going to, it's, it's, it's a broad question. Could you sum up a list of the top, let's say, five items that a lay person who, who opens up an article, let's say, um, uh, an article from like the Wall Street Journal or from the, the China Daily Africa edition or, or from the Journal of African Studies. What should this person look for when, when reading a, a Africa-China article in the future? And, um, and is there a, are there any kind of articles that, that you've read recently that, that you think um, hit these, these top five things in good or, or bad ways? Um, let me take your question um, from the bottom up, if you will. Um, there are two, two articles that I've used as examples, both in my teaching and in my writing, as examples of really, really atrocious um, <laughs> journalism. Um, there was a piece written in 2009 by a British journalist called Andrew Malone. This is an award-winning journalist. He wrote an article, and just based on the title alone, one can see where it's going, right? Oh, well, I mean, come on. Journalists don't get to choose their, their, their titles. China's taking over Africa. That's the first part. And why the West should be very afraid. Okay, those titles aren't good, but you know the journalist doesn't choose the article. Come on, you got to no, be able to... That, okay, so he may not have written that title, but the entire article was the most incredibly racist piece of garbage I've ever read, um, skewing all kinds of myths and rumors about China coming to take over Africa, um, really playing on fears, and was kind of one of the best examples of yellow peril journalism that I've ever seen. And to, to, to see an award-winning journalist stooping to those levels was, was astonishing. So bias, racism, kind of invoking European colonialism, um, but not just that, it was in, in, in invoking invasion basically saying that the Chinese are coming in and sending their minions to take over Africa was astonishing. Um, there was another piece that was written more recently in a South African journal called Noseweek called How's It China? Um, again, just um, incredibly offensive in terms of uh, some of the, again, myths and rumors that they were spreading. Um, you asked about the sum up the list of kind of five things. Well, it, whatever magical number you want to use. Of, of, you know, sources, uh, quoting experts, okay? In the Noseweek article, they quoted an expert who was a retired professor. Um, and the article was about Chinese shops in South Africa and the proliferation of Chinese shops. And again, kind of this fear-mongering about all these Chinese sneaking into the country and you know, accusations that this was all a plot um, by Beijing to take over. Um, <laughs> completely inaccurate, right? But quoting this expert, and it turned out this was a retired professor of international trade who'd never done a single piece of work on China or Chinese people or Chinese shops. And this is, you know, 
one one kind of looks for expertise in an article like this, then certainly that expert should have some expertise in the area in question. No? That might be asking too much. <laughs> um, again, you know, is is there examples in in you know whatever article you're reading of you know, attempts to draw these broad general conclusions of trying to frame the relationship in a particular way. Is there, you know, attempts to kind of look at China, and, and this is another one of my pet peeves, is, is these China-Africa articles, oftentimes in the same way that Andrew Malone does, it's looking at China-Africa, but with our as, and, and when I say that, I mean, you know, U.S. or the U.K. or European interests at heart. You know, you, mm. who is your reader? You know, and I think that's one of the questions is, who is this journalist writing for? Who, who are they concerned about? And in the Andrew Malone article, it was very clear that Andrew Malone didn't give a hoot about the Africans. You know, he was talking about the Chinese and Africans, but it was why the West needs to be afraid. Why... The West is, is, you know, losing its position, losing its power in, in its former colonial, you know, kind of countries. But this is a huge issue for me, is, um, it is, is constantly looking at China-Africa through a particularly American or Western lens. It's quite fascinating that you would say that because I've been saving my last question um, <laughs> for you. And it, was, um, it has to do with the lens by which we try to understand and frame Chinese engagement um, and Chinese Sino-African engagement. Um, one of the things that you know, we talked about, whether we would be able to get these generalized theories of engagement and um, even looking through like political science, for instance, a lot of the way that we see the world has been framed by um, Western ideology, a Western um, Western form of thinking. In fact, if you begin to look at non-Western um, approaches to to government, to the polis, to political interaction, that's considered Orientalism. Well, that's a, the, the the Eastern method, um, and that's a whole different field of study, which isn't readily accessible for your. Um, for your, your typical political scientist or your typical student or even in the media, um, do you think that there needs to be the development of a different lens or framework by which we try to understand this new relationship? Because for most intents and purposes, the Western lens does not adequately um, represent or, or, or explain or understand all the different forms and societies and countries that make up Africa and the different societies that make up China as well. We're talking about entities with a, with a different history, with a different system of um, government, different levels of interaction. Do we need to, and, and not just do we need to, but how do we go about resetting um, our, 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 our method of understanding what's going on? I, uh, I would agree with you, and I think it's necessary. I think in some ways it's, um, it's not going to be something that's easy to do, but one of the things that um, I think will certainly help in reframing how we view what's going on um, in terms of China-Africa relations 
is going to be a matter of perspective. You know, it's going to take people like yourself, Nigerian American who studied here, who still has close ties with Nigeria. Um, you know, the more uh, Chinese students, um, African students, journalists who are reporting on these things from their own perspectives, I think adds incredible value um, and, and depth and, and perspective to what it is that we're actually witnessing. Um, I, I see myself as part of that as a Korean American, a migrant, an immigrant myself to this country, but someone who spent you know, over 16 years living in Africa, I think I have a, a different perspective from your average American who's never left this country. And um, I, I get highly offended by, um, you know, the, this, this Western framing, because, you know, when I say I look at Chinese migrants in Africa, I'm concerned about those migrants. I'm concerned. My concerns are about you know the Africans with whom these Chinese migrants are engaging. You know, what are the African perceptions? What are the African responses? Um, coming to Washington D.C., looking for you know, kind of trying to get a sense of what's happening um, in China-Africa relations in this city, which is you know obviously the nation's capital um, and the heart of global China-Africa research. is that, you know, those institutions who are concerned about these things or, you know, the, the last two congressional hearings that have been held about China and Africa, the main concern um, amongst these institutions is, you know, how does it affect us, you know, as in America? How does it impact on us? And I think, frankly, you know, in some ways, perhaps as academics, we have greater freedom, latitude to think more broadly. And I do think that that's one of our jobs, and Cam, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the other um, academics who are in the field right now is to try to reframe um, how we view what's going on and trying to understand um, what's happening um, in, in a way that's not um, trying to slot China-Africa relations into you know, the, the colonial mode um, of what happened in the past. You know, this, this is very different what's going on. You know, that's not to say there aren't similarities, but there, there, there are some very significant differences, and I think we need to point those out in our work. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna try and, and, and push ahead the recommendations. That's okay in, in the interest of time, um, but I I I think everything that you said is is, is fascinating. I am actually, I, I've debated these sort of points before, so we might have another debate topic on our hands, Dr. Kalu, for the future uh, about the framing. But let's talk about recommendations. Uh, um, who would like to go first? Because you're both uh, doctors and you're both um, ladies. I'll let Dr. Park go first. Okay. I actually haven't prepared any recommendations, so I'm gonna hand over to you guys from this program more regularly. That, that's okay. Um, well, I have two then, one for me and one for Dr. Park. Um, Smart. first recommendation actually does come from Dr. Park. Thank you for your um, African Chi Africans in China and China's Chinese in Africa um, scholarship, uh, the, the, the group of scholars and other interested parties. But there was an article that came through our network recently on China 
and Regional Integration as Drivers of Structural Transformation in Africa, authored by Richard, I'm going to butcher his last name, looks to me like Sheer, and Alex Rugamba. Um, this article looks at um, the increasing relevance of the Chinese rule in promoting integration uh, between African states, which is something that we began to see, I think, with Chinese involvement um, with, through, with African states through the, the machinations of the Forum on China-Africa Corporation. But now we're seeing it even more significantly through um, infrastructure and, um, and um, some of the other tangible investments that China is making in Africa. So it was a very fascinating um, article on um, just the role of the Chinese in telecommunications, roads, and infrastructure, and how that's um, helping to propel integration in Africa. And then the second recommendation that I had was um, a World Bank publication. And I actually was lucky enough to go to the book release um, at the World Bank a couple days ago, which the book is called Tales from the Development Frontier, How China and Other Countries Harness Light Manufacturing to Create Jobs and Prosperity, authored by Hin T. Din, Thomas Roski, Ali Zafar, Li Hong Wang, and Eleonora Mavrodi. Uh, Li Hong Wang probably is, is, is the way it probably pronounced. I imagine you say that better than I do. Um, but what's really fascinating about this book is that it looks at um, employing methods of light manufacturing to propel industrialization, but it's not um, that the research style is very inductive. They looked, they looked at China and a number of other countries and looked at what worked and what are the, the, the general lessons that can be um, taken from those experiences and transplanted into other countries hopeful for industrialization, for instance, African nations. But it is a really fascinating read and a wonderful presentation. Those are my <laughs> recommendations. Okay, um, so three things. One, Dr. Kalu's pronunciation of names is far better than mine, and I've butchered so many, so like, I, uh, sorry to, to step on your, 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 your toes there. Two, that uh, World Bank event, I think um, a hat tip goes off to Andy uh, Leo. Is, is that right? He's the one who, who, who told us about that event. Is that right, Dr. Yes. Kalu? So Andy, he's a China open mic. He's the dude. We're very grateful. I love that guy. Thank you so much for, for letting us know. I'm sorry I couldn't go myself. And then, um, and then the uh, the the last thing that um, I oh hold on. My mic just um, had, a, had a little problem, I, I apologize. Um, but yeah, the, the last thing I, I, I want to talk about is that Dr. Kalu and I are members of, of Dr. Park's incredible research network, which is the best darn China-Africa research network there is. Um, so, so uh, you know, we, we had uh, full disclosure. I have two really brief um, uh, recommendations, and they're both... They're both not really uh, China-Africa related, but but I, I thought they were, uh, in, in, for, for me, really fascinating. One is an article by Miss uh, Monica Mark of uh, The Guardian, and she wrote about uh, African video games level up. It's, it's an article talking about African video games, but mostly about uh, Nigerian video games. And look, I love video games. I love Africa. I love Nigeria. This for me was a really interesting article um, that that looks at um, that looks at a story of, of how different um, Nigerian game companies are, are starting up. And when when you hear about the Af the, the rise of Africa's middle class, 
and, and you're hearing all these great stories, and, and, and China's definitely involved in that. But for me, a, a far more interesting story is how Africans themselves grapple with that. And, and, and developing their own domestic video game industries, I think, is fantastic. Um, I, when I was in Nigeria, I had a Nintendo Entertainment System, um, and it helped me learn English. Um, so, like, African video games are near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I think it's a, a really, a really fun, a fun story. The other story, and is a, a lot more personal, um, was by uh, Teju Cole, and, I'm, and I never know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, the, the, the famous author. He he uh, he wrote on the New Yorker page turn a blog a letter from Nairobi. I will say it before death comes, which is this incredible, just moving piece. Um, talking about the 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 recent Westgate attack. Um, and there was a really prominent uh, Ghanaian poet who died, um, and this um, the the author of the piece actually heard the the poet um, quite recently bef before everything happened, and I mean it's I just read it. Uh, that's 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 all I'm going to say. It's just really really beautiful, really moving, and the poet's name is uh, Kofi Awunor, I I I, I believe, it. Um, but just really gorgeous. Um, and 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 for me, really helped put the the, the Westgate attack in um, in, in context. Um, that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Dr. Park for joining us this afternoon, as well as African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher. We just got approved for Stitcher. Uh, hopefully, iTunes in the future. Uh, we are expanding to more media platforms uh, as well uh, as as we see fit, and as long as you know people listen to us. I would also like to thank uh, we would also like to thank Michael McGarity, also known as Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings, for composing the theme song that everyone seems to love. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. Bye.